0: This is Daryl Lalia, and you're listening to the Before the Man's Podcast, Episode 191. Entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey,
1: this is Mark Asquith, the host of the Seven Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur, and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobster, the Cash flow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast.
0: For whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the 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 right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. Podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. What is going on, good people? Welcome to a brand new installment of the Before the Millions podcast. I'm your host, DeRay Olalaye, And on today's episode, this is episode 191, by the way. Today's episode, we are featuring A fix and flip investor by the name of Mr. Gabriel da Silva. And I just got done watching episode one of his YouTube series called The Build, where it looks like where he's just kind of being followed around by cameras as he's doing fix and flip deals. So episode one was amazing. It's about six minutes long. And check it out. Gabe is a great guy, as you'll see on today's episode. We're gonna talk about building momentum. We're going to talk about gaining traction. We're going to talk about how that snowball initially takes a lot of work to form and mold and get it to the right shape. And as you progress along and that snowball starts getting bigger because you're pushing it right as you push it, it builds momentum. It gets bigger and it starts taking on a life of its own. And eventually it starts rolling down the hill by itself. And that's called forward momentum. And that's the same way that your real estate business can grow. If you do certain things. So we're going to talk about some of the things that Gabriel is doing in his business to build traction. And pun intended, we're actually talking about the book traction a whole lot in this episode by Gino Wickman. So if you're at a stage or thinking about, you know, having a team and building out your business where you're not a sole proprietor, you're not a solopreneur, you're not a solo entrepreneur. Uh, Then this episode is definitely for you. And for those of you who have been considering fix and flips again, first off, watch the build by Mr. Gabe De Silva. But also listen to this episode. We're going to get into why this business model has been so lucrative for Gabriel specifically, because again, he's not the fix and flipper. That's the same thing we do in our business when it comes to catering to a motivated seller. See, where most investors would pass on a motivated seller, again, a seller that's motivated to sell their property, but the investor just simply doesn't have the right tools to make a profitable deal out of the situation. Those deals are the deals that we eat up every single day. See, Gabriel can get a deal done because he can figure out how to make a deal profitable, whereas most flippers would be like, no, there's no way that's not a profitable deal. There's no way I could add value to this property to make it profitable. There's no way I could make the numbers work like this. just It's not profitable. I'm not doing it. So Gabriel's nickname in the industry is Mr. a Level. And we'll talk about on the episode exactly why that is. But I think I've given you guys a big hint. I need to put it on my to-do list to brush up on traction. I haven't read traction in a few years. And currently in the business, we have operators, we have contractors, we have partners, right? There's a lot of moving pieces. And more specifically, when it comes to contractors, right? Since there are no actual employees in the business, everybody's contracted out. And as you're hiring team members, you want to make sure that you're doing it the right way. You want to make sure that ultimately, if you're a visionary, then you're playing that role. If you're an integrator, then you're playing that role, so on and so forth. So again, that, that the book Traction is what really helps you put all those pieces together. So... Since there's a whole lot of hiring and training and seeing what's a good fit going on right now in the business, I figure I need to go back and brush up on that because sometimes, as you guys know, you read books entirely too early and sometimes you read books, you know, entirely too late. And there's often been books where I've read way back in the day and I'm like, okay, well, it's not time for this, but I know where to find this information when it is time for this. So anyways, if you're not subscribed to the before the millions podcast, go ahead and make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you are notified each and every week when we drop our episodes. I'm actually excited because we have a brand new podcast manager coming on board today so that we can make sure that we keep up to date with all our podcast episodes. Because again, guys, we have so many episodes to put out and just not enough manpower. So uh, every Tuesday, we'll be featuring a brand new episode with a brand new real estate entrepreneur or myself talking about the business, talking about the journey before the millions. So again, Make sure you are subscribed. With that being said, let's get to the tip of the week.
1: The tip of the week.
0: That is my sound for the Boost Mobile chirp. I never had a chirp, but I always thought that those sounds were the coolest and I always wanted one just for the sound of a message. Um, But I bring that into the tip of the week because, again, in business, there are lots of moving parts. If you're running a business, if you're a part of a business and you know this, and communication can often be the key to getting a deal done or falling flat on your face. So there are lots of communication apps out there. We've talked about many over the past I don't know, 100 or 200 episodes. And many of the guests have shared some of their favorites, but one that hasn't been talked about and one that I've been using for I don't know how many years uh, actually as my primary communication tool for my students and also the contractors in the business is called Voxer, V-O-X-E-R. And maybe I have talked about it back in the day a long, long time ago, but I truly do not remember. But it's called Voxer and you can find it at Voxer.com. They also have an App for um, I believe iPhone and Android. So you can even download an app on your computer. I mean, you can literally access this anywhere, but it's it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the, the boost mobile chirp. Uh, it's a walkie talkie app, but it has so many other built in features that it's a it's a group texting app. Uh, again, it's a texting app. Uh, you can attach videos and you can attach uh, screen shares. You could attach uh, snapshots um, you can do a ton of different things in this app, but its primary feature and what I like about it best is its push to talk functionality, right? I mean, again, you can do this in an iPhone or an Android, I'm sure, but it, it's not as simple and it's not as easy and it's not a completely separate app from what's kind of going on in your text messages. And I like to be able to cater to my clients, right? Uh, and my students and definitely my contractors, my virtual assistants. In a reasonable manner. Right. And this means, hey, if some if a student or a client is on site and they want to make an offer and they have a question or two, I can quickly get to their question and answer their question in a heartbeat because I treat my Voxer app as my my highest priority task when I open my phone. All right, So if my virtual assistants need any help or, you know, we need to make an offer or whatever the case may be, they can contact me directly immediately. It doesn't have to be through email, you know, text messages. Yes, that's a great way of communication. But when you have a virtual team, um, you don't want to have a group chat. Right. Um, it's just not professional. You don't want to you're not going to be able to attach files and videos and Instructions and you're not, you're not going to have searchable text. There's a, just, there, there's a lot as to why you just want a professional app to handle all of your team needs. So as you start to have a team. In order to stay organized, I suggest you have an app similar to, if not the app itself, Voxer over at Voxer.com. And I'm no affiliate. This is not a sponsorship anything, but it's the app that I've been using to communicate with all of my high-level clients, my students, as well as my actual team uh, to make sure that we're communicating as efficiently and as effectively as possible. I'm not big on texting all day, every day. I'd rather send you, you know, I could I could talk faster than I could text, right? So I, I'd rather send you a quick voice message explaining the entire situation so that you can hear it in real time and respond back to me in real time. It's pretty cool. Check it out, Voxer.com. Brr, brr. And now your feature presentation.
1: So I I hadn't gone that deep until just recently. Thinking about like the baseball card thing, which a lot of the kids um, from my era did, right? You traded baseball cards, and you were looking in the uh, in the book at the at the valuations or whatever. So I would say that was probably like in my early teens. I was probably messing around with that stuff, but I was like, "What about lemonade stands? What about girl like Boy Scout cookies, whatever?" I didn't do any of that, and then I was like, "Wait a second! I remember when I was little, I used to run around and collect aluminum cans, and used to be able to um, smash them." And then you would bag them and then you would sell the aluminum. And I was remembering myself as like, I had to be six years old, you know, running around collecting them. And then in the summer, like they still have some soda left in them. So they're all like sticky and smelly. And I remember bugs, right. And, um, walking around my grandfather and doing that in, uh, I grew up in, in Newark, right. So it's, it's a pretty densely populated city here in New Jersey. And, uh, there was a lot of aluminum to be collected and, uh, and sold. And so that's my like first foray into entrepreneurship. I didn't know, you know, what I was doing back then. I just knew that I'd I'd collect enough cans to get 10, 20 bucks each week because I couldn't even go sell them at the scrapyard. My dad would have to go do that for us. But I'd say it started there. That was the bug. And then came the cards and and the and Boy Scout stuff and like the little hustles on the side. But the first ones all the way back into like that five, six year old like era. I like it. I like it. I like it. I can I can definitely reminisce on those times as
0: well. I I don't think I may have gotten as far as you did with the cards. I remember uh I was maybe in in 5th grade and I was actually I had got sent to like a gifted and talented school. Um just to just to I guess put us all together. So I was, you know, I was on my high horse and I was feeling good and I remember um I remember one day they had this book fair and you know, at book fairs, you, you get the opportunity to buy those baseball cards. So I bought my first set of baseball cards. I was super excited. I was telling my friends and maybe I, I, I don't, my memory is hazy on this because it was such a long time ago, but I just remember the very next day, the principal called me into the office and um, I was in serious trouble. And I remember my teacher, Ms. Shrap louis that was her name. I still remember to this day because I was just like, what did I do to you? Um, but I got in trouble for soliciting baseball cards. <laughs> and it wasn't trouble like, oh, you're suspended for three days. It was trouble like, you no longer can go to this school. <laughs> So I got sent back to regular, you know, public school. And I was just like, man, like that sucked. I, I was really like, you know, growing my roots. here. I really enjoyed it. Like I was second chair playing the saxophone. I was like, you know, I was doing my thing. And then all of a sudden I got in trouble with these baseball cards. So yeah, I, uh, my first entrepreneurial venture obviously was a fail, but yours was a success.
1: Yours, was... <laughs> <We're> <laughs> all, You know, they're all a success at that age because you're not really going to monetize to the tune of anything significant at that age. It's really just about planting the seed and starting to understand how to, Extract value where there seemingly is none. And that's the common theme. Like, if we carry that all the way forward, that's what we do now as entrepreneurs. Like, that's what you're doing. You're 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 seeing value where others don't. You're creating a product or service to provide value. Um, and yeah, so we start as a kid with cards and lemonade and freaking aluminum cans, and then you wind up wherever the journey takes you.
0: How do you how do you feel about that? I mean, when you say you're seeing value where others don't, I agree with you, and I think we're on the same thought pattern with that. I was talking to um you know, you, I don't know if you, you have different title companies that do different things but I was talking to a title company um one of the popular title companies I was talking to um one of my ladies there and sh- she just couldn't do the type of deal to, that I was uh, I was closing on I was closing on sub- on a subject to deal yeah. and I was just explaining to her what the situation was and like hey this is what's going on with the with the owner and this is why she's allowing me to buy her property with no money and she was just like taking she was just blown away she was like but Dere don't you don't you feel like you're taking advantage of her? And I was just like, not at all. Like without me, she'd go into foreclosure. This would be, you know, this would be on her record and all this stuff. She has no money to do repairs. Like, not at all. Like, I'm helping her. She she tells me thank you at the end of the transaction. And she was mm-hmm. just like, but but no, Duray, like, why don't you just like why can't she just do these things herself? I was like, well, she doesn't, she doesn't have the knowledge or expertise or know-how. She doesn't even want to have that knowledge, right? She's a school mm-hmm. teacher. Like she has no desire for that. And for some one reason or another, my title company lady, like she just couldn't, she just, she couldn't wrap her head around me being able to come in and add value as a bit as this, as a business model for people who, who no longer want their homes. So, mm. so, so talk to me about adding value
1: versus taking advantage of people. Mm. So you find, you find inefficiencies in the market, you find a need, and it, it applies in what we do in the real estate world, but this is ubiquitous like anywhere in any industry in any space if you see an inefficiency if you see a gap and you can provide value by filling that gap with a product or service like therein lie the riches right they say like the riches are in the niches like what's the niche what's the niche that you can serve uh in this scenario you're serving sellers who are in a bind Uh, it's not we're not taking advantage of anyone we're providing value for that person we're doing a thing a service or a product offering that gets them where they need to go because they don't have the ability to get there. If they did, sure, they would do it on their own. But you know, they don't. Whether it's time, money, right, the knowledge, there's something there. There's a disconnect there, and that's where we come in as entrepreneurs. And like the good ones, the ones that are that sustain, uh, will always look for opportunities to add value, and then. The degree to which you can add value, how good you are at that thing is the degree to which you're compensated for. Like, entrepreneurship is the um, personal development program with the greatest um, reward possibility. Like, the better you get, the better you develop your craft as an entrepreneur, the higher you'll be compensated for it. It's got the best compensation package of any personal development program on the planet just get good at bringing value to other people and those people are inadvertently they're, they're going to have no choice but to compensate you and reward you for the value you bring um so yeah i don't even i don't even see it as taking advantage folks that do see it that way their uh view of the entire thing is flawed they've never sat and and sat with it and thought about what you and i are just uh, sharing here, right? This podcast would serve them. <laughs> I love it, absolutely. So, so Gabriel, walk
0: me up until the point where you where you start to realize that real estate is a viable path for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so my my origin story starts in the um, construction space. So, as a as a kid, I grew up in and around construction. My dad was a builder, so I'm a gen- I'm a second generation builder. I. Grew up around the kitchen table, him looking at blueprints, reviewing proposals, preparing bids, those types of things. So, subconsciously, as a kid, a lot of those things are ingrained. My parents then go on to encourage me, discourage me from working with my hands like they did, and encourage me to go to school and get a true job. I'm using air quotes for those that are listening, not watching, right? Like a job, uh, which I then went on to do. I got a bunch of degrees in finance and things that the, it was. 10 years of misery, 10 years in a corporate job I absolutely hated, working the cube farm, right? Like I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Um, real estate wasn't my first foray into entrepreneurship as an adult. We're not talking about the cans and the baseball cards anymore. Like my first foray into entrepreneurship as an adult after corporate was food. And I get into the food service industry. I, along with a partner, open a restaurant. We run it in parallel for a few years. I ultimately sold it to him. He went on to run it. And then I transitioned into real estate, which is where I belong in the first place. It's just like, naturally, it's something that I do really, really well. Subconsciously, it's something that I've got ingrained in my nervous system from childhood. uh, And it's a legacy play. It's, it's the one common denominator amongst all the wealthy people, you know, it's they hold real estate, they own assets, real estate being the primary one and it cash flows. And so, I mean, it's a no brainer. Uh, everybody listening to this, whatever it is that you do in your world now, real estate ought to be bolted onto the side. Like That's just a fact.
0: Right. Right. And I know there's some value to be extracted from that transition from the restaurant space to the real estate space, mm-hmm. especially with a partnership that you, you know, eventually sold your half of the partnership. I mean, how what 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 was the plan at the time? What were you thinking? Where was there was there beef? Was there angst or was this an, was there an opportunity? I mean, what kind of
1: walk me through maybe the, the the biggest trial and tribulation during that time? Yeah. Uh so it's a it's a super long story. Let me compress it and 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 take like extract from it the learning lessons. So our intention was always never to hold a single unit. Right, you don't you don't make restaurants work by owning a restaurant. Really, nobody does. Um, What's it, what, what city was this or is this restaurant in? It's in so it's in Newark, New Jersey, where I grew up. I had a feeling. I, had,
0: I was like, it's going to be, I, I, was, just, I, was, going to, I was going to say it's going to be in New York, but close enough.
1: <laughs> it's essentially, so what it was, was a luncheonette that served corporate downtown business folks. So we had a, a massive lunch rush and we were bleeding money on the front and the back end of the day. We really made our uh, money between 11 and one. What we ultimately looked to do there, it was our own concept. It was a single unit, but it was franchisable in the sense that everything we did, we worked it into a into a binder, into a, an operations manual, a kitchen Bible. We were ready to roll this concept out. And it had legs. Uh, what we ultimately did was, was get together and say, listen, this single unit standalone restaurant is not going to feed two families. So at this point, we need to decide, are we going to sell? Because to roll out restaurants, you never open the second restaurant at the risk of cannibalizing the first. You open up store two, three, and four at the same time if store one proofs the concept. So you don't What year, do that. What year, what year is this? Uh, 2014. Okay, just for context. Okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And so for you to do that, you need, uh, you need capital. And the store doesn't generate enough capital. Your first unit isn't going to kill it, right? It just doesn't make enough money for you to open three more stores. So you have to bring on partners in turn, giving up equity. And that's where my partner and I said, we're going to go in different directions. He's going to run with this and I'm going to move on to the next thing. And so we're still best friends to this day. Uh, He's since sold it and transitioned into real estate, which is a funny coincidence. So we're both doing the same thing. We're in different markets now. He's since moved, um, the learning lesson there is like start with the exit in mind always for us to find ourselves in a position four years into owning this thing where we're now like, Hey, we have to give up equity to open these other stores. We ought to know that up front. You ought to know. I mean, now those that are listening to this will hear it like store one, whatever that store is, will never fuel and feed store two, three, and four. Uh, And that that's across industry. That's not just restaurants. So we weren't, um, we weren't. Our reserves weren't deep enough. We didn't have the capital that we needed. So start with the exit in mind. Always know where you're headed, and then make sure you're capitalized to do those things or have the right capital partner ready. Don't find yourself where we did without the capital. Then shopping our concept to people, um, not sure who our new partners were going to be. Uh, that that's when things get complicated. So that that's you know that that's what I would share with your audience. I love it. So. 2014,
0: 2015, you acquire this massive, 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 just wealth of knowledge through the restaurant industry. Um, but also you exit, right? So you have all this knowledge, and maybe for a few weeks or for, for a few months, you're twiddling your thumbs. But
1: how do you recognize the next opportunity for you? Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't clean, I'll tell you that. So for six months, I kind of l- licked my wounds. Because my identity was so tied to this thing that I had been working at for so long that this new journey for me was was uncertain. And so I found myself in Brooklyn for six months without real direction, um, spending a lot of time in cafes and bars and restaurants because that's the industry I knew. And so, of course, I gravitated to that. And that's where I found myself doing a lot of reading, honestly, uh, a lot of Tony Robbins stuff, like just a lot of personal development, looking back on the things that I had done over the previous four years and saying, you know what, like there were a lot of things I did well, but there were a lot of things I could improve upon as a leader, as a business owner, um, as a marketer. And so I spent six months really digging in and just getting like honing my craft because I had come out of restaurant ownership with 10,000 hours um, as an operator, right? Like that whole Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours to, uh, of deliberate practice to attain mastery. I had mastered the operations of a restaurant. Now, how do I take and roll that into what's next? And that's the transition. And, and that's what ultimately has proved to make us super successful in the world of fix and flips um, which we can go to next if if that's where you want to take the conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. So, what is it, well, how did that first fix and flip op- opportunity come about? Yeah, so so after this foray into Brooklyn and just like this uncertainty and, and, and time spent really digging in, I come back and start entrenching myself in the local like RIA community, right? The, the real estate investment associations here locally thinking I'm going to be an agent, thinking like I'm going to start selling houses. But quickly realized that like the opportunity for me is on the investment side, not on the retail side. Um, and what am I going to do that's going to differentiate me from every other guy or girl in the room, right? We were going to Ria's with 225 people showing up every third Wednesday of the month. And I would go every month And I would hear the same story from these people. I would sit at the table with a lot of folks and it'd be month after month. And they're still coming in, telling the same story. Like their intro isn't changing. And I said, there's no way I'm coming here month after month, saying the same thing to the same person. Like I have to be making progress each month. And so I did, you know, it's, uh, taking the class, taking the test, getting licensed early on. It's stuff like that. Then it's, um, calling sellers, then it's writing offers. And then each month, like, you know, I'm starting to generate some momentum. The first deal hits and I say, I'm going to do this deal the way I did restaurants. Like you can't afford not to be systematic and process driven in the restaurant world because uh, your staff will eat you alive, right? Your food will turn. You only have six, seven days. Food turns. Like real estate is so forgiving, right? The shelf life on real estate is infinitely longer than freaking lettuce. So, what I what I did was get into the fix and flip world, but bring a lot of those learning lessons. Those ten thousand hours as an operator in food service have served me so well as an operator here in the fix and flip world. Um, Because we're systematic and process driven, it's not like your average GC working from his cell phone right shooting from the hip running to home depot right i'm using quotes again running to home depot like you obviously didn't do something right if you're running to home depot so we just got real systematic about how we ran our projects and it started early on and and of course things go wrong i mean early on you're not going to know everything so you're going to make mistakes and then you're going to pivot and you know your system is going to evolve um so, you know, that was the big learning lesson, and that's how that transition kind of took place.
0: Do you remember? Do you remember what that first deal looked like? Yeah,
1: for sure. Talk <laughs> to me about it. What are the numbers on it? Uh, the first deal was a oversized cape in um, in a neighborhood in a desirable subsection of a town on a golf course, and so I go in there with the intention of doing a cosmetic rehab, kitchen, the bathrooms. Uh, floors, paint, whatever, get in and out quick, make 40K. I don't manage my demo guys properly. They wind up demoing way more house than I intended because I wasn't on them the way I should have been. And at the end of the first week, I walked into a gut reno. My intention was to do a cosmetic rehab. I wound up having a gut reno most of this because these guys tore the house apart. They didn't have the right direction. I wasn't clear. I was leaving them and then running around doing other things rather than really driving them properly. Um, so there's my first learning lesson. Mm. This Mm. one comes back to, um, I, I get lucky on this one in that what that house actually called for based on its location, being in this like really desirable neighborhood on the golf course, right? This subsection of union, New Jersey, for those that are local and are listening, um, it warranted a gut reno. This house needed to be done the way that I ultimately did it. So I would have done the cosmetic rehab and I would have netted 40, or at least that's the way I had it modeled. I wind up having to do this you know, more extensive rehab and we wind up doing 80, 86K or something um, on it. And that's, that's, nice. and that's when the, the switch flipped for me. I said, wait a second, like, I wasn't intending to do all this, but we wound up doing it anyway and we were rewarded for it. So maybe I need to start looking at these bigger rehabs anyway. Maybe that's the model I should be um, following. And that's how our uh, construction heavy value add, like fix and flip model was built. I love it. I love it. I'm glad we got into that story. How'd you find this deal? Uh, At one of those RIAs, at one of those meetups, just... Like I said, each week showing up, presenting yourself differently, each month, I should say, you show up at these meetings. And I just wanted to always have something new to say. And so for me, like after a couple of months, I said, I need to start acting like a guy who buys deals. Mm -hmm. Like Even though I haven't bought a deal yet, I need to act like a guy who's buying deals because otherwise, I'm like all these other guys and girls who are like, they mentally masturbate about the buying of a deal, but they never actually buy one. And so I showed up with my investor package, my credibility packet, a deal modeled to show folks, Hey, like I'm for real. And and so people are passing around business cards at the table. I'm passing around, um, an investment summary, a three pager, and it's colorful and it looks like, Whoa, whoever put this together knows what they're doing. And so I have a finance background, so I know how to create, you know, fancy Excel models, but that's nothing that anybody else listening to this can't do with a tool like house flipping spreadsheets or Whatever, there, there's plenty of tools out there you guys can use. But I say that only to say like, act as if, right? Present yourself accordingly. Assume the sale. Show up. Um, and if you're if you want to be a home buyer, like act like a home buyer. If you wanna think you're an investor, right? A lot of people go to these RIAs and they they think that by going to these RIAs and paying 25 bucks and eating the food, you're an investor. You're not an investor till you cut a check, till you buy a thing, you're not an investor. So Um, Anyway, I just soapboxed really hard there, but that's how that first deal came about. So it's funny. I was talking to one of my students
0: the other day and we we're having this exact conversation and he just wasn't motivated to do the things he needed to do to actually get his first deal done. He wasn't reaching out and prospecting to the right people. He wasn't doing any volume. He was letting just the littlest of problems get in his way, software problems, phone problems, just anything that could possibly pop up. He was like, yeah, this, this, this hurts. I, I, I got to take a break or what, you know, I was just like, dude, like, you, you, you're, you're, you're hinging on the fact that once you get your first deal done, that's when everything changes. Mm. And, and a lot of people do that. They're like, well, yeah, I just want to try it out. I just want to dabble. I just want to, you know, get this 14 day free trial and just see, yeah. and I'm just like, it's never going to happen that way. Mm-hmm. Like, like you have to act like that person who's making 10, 15, 20, 50, a hundred thousand dollars a month you have to act like that person every day, even if it's six months or a year, you act like that person today and you act like that person every day until you hit that goal. Mm-hmm. You show up as that person, and then the universe, the world, God, whatever you want to, whatever you look look to is gonna is it's gonna come back. Like it's gonna be like, okay, well, you're you're doing the things. Okay, what is that fifty thousand dollar, you know, per month business owner doing? Mm-hmm. Are they are they are they letting these technical problems stop them in their tracks and let them take a break for a week? Would they actually do that? And He was just like, no, like, I got it. I'm good. Like, I understand. Mm -hmm. You said something to me, Gabriel. You Mm -hmm. said that you realized in your journey that I want to to understand how you came to this this realization because this is often something that a lot of people struggle with. You realized in your journey that you didn't want to be an agent. You said specifically that Mm -hmm. it didn't fit you Mm -hmm. and you wanted to more so be an investor on the construction side. How did you have that epiphany, that realization? How did you deduce that that was the right move for you? And how can our listeners maybe kind of figure that out for themselves?
1: Mm. So it, it's, it's a self-awareness thing for sure. It, like time spent digging in and like I advocate for the Tony Robbins stuff so much because it really did um, open uh, a lot of doors for me, internal doors. And you go inside and you figure out what you're good at. And you can be honest with yourself about the things you're not good at. And then you quickly outsource the things you're not good at and triple down on the ones that you are good at. And so for me, I know that retail was not my strong suit. I would build rapport with people. I build rapport with sellers still to this day to buy their homes. I'm good at that. Interpersonal communication is a strength. I love to build rapport with people. I love to understand and and get to know them and their story there's something about being a retail agent that requires just a little bit more EQ than I have. And that's just me being honest with myself. Like the EQ piece, uh, like I can lead a team, I can cast a vision as an integrator. I can cascade that vision down to to my team and I can get everybody fired up about a common goal. That's where my EQ is strong. When it comes to sitting across the table from a couple, And trying to understand how and why they want to move, they want to buy, they want to sell. That's not my gift. It's not. And my fiance, that is her gift. And she's incredible at it. And so when, like, of course, I'm fortunate in the sense that we got to partner early on in our careers and she handles all the dispo for us. But if in your world you are not that person, the sooner you realize you're not that person and outsource that to the person, the sooner you can focus on finding and funding deals, assuming you're that person. If you're an ops person, then you know the more time you can spend honing your craft and getting really good at driving projects. Uh, so it's a self-awareness thing. There's really no uh, one size fits all answer for that. It's, it's really up to each person. And If you're struggling to figure that out, something someone told me is the people closest to you will often see what you can't. So give them permission to be brutally honest with you and have them tell you what they think you're amazing at. Then have them tell you what they think you suck at, because you probably, you got blinders on. You don't want to know that you're not good at a thing. And so, you know, there's a bias there, but have the people who really love you and care about you that are closest to you, tell you what you suck at. And then just say, wow, like, there's a consensus here. Like I might not want to believe it, but if these people all say it, then chances are, I really am not good at this thing. Let me outsource this to a professional and let me focus on the thing that they said I am good at.
0: I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, (laughs) it's, it's, it's funny. Um, Most people, they gravitate towards the first thing that they hear, or maybe the the most intriguing thing, or maybe the thing that makes the most money. And I always tell people, look, you got to take a step back. Like you said, it's all about self-awareness, right? And you have to be aware of what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you like and what you don't like, what you want to see in your future and what you don't want to have there. And once you can kind of figure out all those things, you can start xing things off of your list. Like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, Realtors make pretty good money. Um, you know, Developers make pretty good money. Um, land flippers make pr- pretty good money. Um, rental property owners. I mean, every single niche in real estate, you're going to find multiple, if not tons of millionaires in that niche. So let's take the money out of the equation. Let's figure out what you're good at. Let's figure out what you like. Let's figure out what your long term goals are, and that's something that you did early on, so that you made sure you didn't go down the wrong path. Now, me on the other hand, I suffered from shiny object syndrome for a while before I I kind of pieced together. Okay, this is what I'm good at. I'm good at this is what I like, and this is where I see myself building generational wealth. Now, mm-hmm. in terms of your future, I mean, at this point now, you've built a, a a development company that does this like all across the country. So tell me tell me a little bit more about what your role is. And then in telling me that, like, I know, uh, in, in telling me that, tell me how the team is structured, what your team looks like, right? And then on a day-to-day basis, what your interaction is with with each, each team member as your role. Um, because I, I think it's interesting, once you once you build a business big enough to where you can have employees and team members taking over their responsibilities and you can truly, like you said, focus on what you're good at, that's when the business expands and that's when the business blows up. So tell me a little bit more about your role today and what that team looks like.
1: Yeah. So as you scale a business and the second you make a hire, everything changes. So if you're a solopreneur, then you're operating a different kind of business. The second you bring on a person you now are responsible to feed that person. And I'm not just talking about pay them so they can put food on the table. That's obvious. But you have to lead, coach, and hold them accountable. And so in the background, for those that are watching, they'll see a copy of Traction by Gino Wickman, EOS, the Entrepreneur's Operating System. I genuinely believe it's the entrepreneur's Bible. It's the system we implement in our business. And that's where LCA lead coach and hold accountable comes from. That's your number one responsibility. The second you bring on someone like you are now responsible to lead coach and hold accountable. You're the visionary who has to cascade your vision down to your team in a way that they can like align with it and then execute on it. If uh, you're not managing people properly, then you're, you might as well be a solopreneur. And you know that that's cap. You can only grow so much. So What it looks like for us is, and I believe that it doesn't matter if you have a three-person organization or a 3,000-person organization, the same org chart still works. So it's visionary, integrator, and then a head of finance, a head of operations, and a head of marketing. Give them whatever titles you want. That is a core, and from there, all things flow. Um, That's the org chart. And so, I mean, visually, people can see it. I'm doing it with my hands for those that aren't watching. But so your role is as the visionary to come up with a vision. And uh, then either you hire an integrator, which would be your COO, um, or in like my world, I'm still the integrator. So I have this great vision, and now I have to cast this vision down to my organization in a way that they can can wrap their heads and hands around it and align and and execute upon it. And then I also have to lead coach and hold them accountable as the COO to make sure that they're doing those things. So it looks like that. And then administratively, your head of finance is doing all that acquisition stuff, uh, transaction management stuff, um, your payroll, uh, account openings and closings, uh, your operations manager. In our world, that's a project manager. That's a field guy or gal. That person is making sure that your projects are on time and on budget. They're um, receiving uh, and awarding work, receiving bids, proposals, and awarding work. They're making sure that projects are on time and on budget. Like I said, they're uh, managing tradesmen. That's the project manager or your head of operations. And then your marketing person, uh, which is probably... I would say based on your listeners, I suspect that this is one that they are either going to struggle with um, or they're going to wind up wearing this hat for way too long. So what we've found is that this person who's responsible for your campaigns, your social media, your newsletter, uh, essentially your brand, how you appear outwardly to the world, uh, that person... If you can find someone and in-house them, great. What we found is that you can also outsource those individual parts and pieces to third-party agencies. And that's the way it looks in our world. So we've had that seat filled internally a couple of times. Um, It's a tough seat to keep filled. Uh, Frankly, that's been my experience for a whole host of different reasons. So I like outsourcing it to agencies that specialize in each one of those things. Facebook ads, direct mail, uh, web dev, like things like that. Um so anyway I, I for us to go deep on this, we could spend like a whole hour. But I love I- what you've done. I, I love how you've explained <laughs> that. That was super thorough and I appreciate that
0: a lot. And yeah, like you said, if the listeners want like a, a super thorough explanation of what we just kind of highlighted here on the podcast, definitely check out Traction. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. book. So uh, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes for sure. But uh, it, it, when you talk about being the visionary as well as the, the um the integrator, mm-hmm. what does that look like for you on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah it's so here here's where it gets confusing because the the visionary's responsibility is is relationship building above all. So you're supposed to be fostering relationships with lenders, with JV partners, right? As like for us as developers, we're looking for other developer partners um in our education business. I'm looking for people that are doing Um, ancillary things like, so we teach fix and flip at a high level. Uh, We're looking to partner with people that teach um, raising private money at a high level. So uh, how to wholesale, how to to market for deals, what have you. So that's the visionary's role is high level relationship building and decision-making. The the integrator, the COO is about um, leading, managing, and holding accountable. It's they say, <laughs> visionary know thyself and be free. Integrator know thyself and be stressed. Right? It, it's it's a cheeky thing that they say, right? And that's from um, another Gino Wickman book called Rocket Fuel, which talks about the dichotomy between the visionary and the integrator. Which is a great book if you dive into his world and you love traction. Go to the next level and read Rocket Fuel. But it's essentially. I'm wearing both hats in my organization and a lot of visionaries slash integrators do early on. The COO position is the hardest position to fill in the long run. Um, that person has to deal with a lot of upward communication and they have to cascade the message that you give them down to the organization. It's, it's a tough role. It is. It's not for everybody, um, but early on, everybody has to do it. It's It's just how it works. So, Uh, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And over time, you'll find someone who you align with that can be that integrator for you. But, uh, and that's assuming I'm talking to a lot of visionaries. We spoke beforehand uh, on your audience mix, and we're speaking to uh, a diverse audience here that some might be like, wait a second, like I am the integrator. I love operations. I love processes and systems. I love dealing with people and leading them. Like, Hey, like you are the most sought after um, role in an organization. Like if that's you, throw your hand up quick because people like me um, and other big businesses that are growing and scaling, they would love to have you. And that's a 250K a year job. Like, and it's not a job. It's, it's really not a job because you're going to get a lot of freedom if you work for the right visionary. So uh, it's sometimes yeah. it's better to be a number two in an organization. Not everybody has to be a number one. Uh, frankly, not everybody should want to be.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I'm loving this. Absolutely. When you, when you, uh, I, I just want to take it back really quick. Um, when you, when you got your first deal done, I think you said you made $86,000. And I don't know if that's the most money you've ever received at one time, but how did you, how did you think about f- first off financing your life but also scaling your business, like what what was the what was your and are your principles still the same today? like how did you divvy that up? How did you think about what that was supposed to go to? Did that all go back to marketing or did that not go back into the business because you knew you just had more leads like what what was your process then, and how has your process changed since then for managing finances when it comes in like that
1: so when i when I started, I bootstrapped, I went and moved into a garage like you know, those memes you see with Amazon and Google and like Apple. And like, it's a picture of a garage where they started the companies. Like that's legit what I did. I I lived in a garage. And so whatever money I was making, I wasn't taking. Early on, I knew that if I was going to scale this thing, which I absolutely was, I had burned the ships. I had no other option. It was this or nothing. Like I went all in. So all the money goes right back in. One thing I would say about that, that I just recently... We were unpacking this on one of the calls with my mastermind. Is like, hey, when you get that first deal going and you're generating momentum, don't get lulled to sleep and say, hey, I finally got that first deal. I'm just going to drive this one and then I'm going to do the next one. It doesn't work that way. Like, whatever you did to get that first deal, do more of it and get another deal working in parallel. That's how you scale. A lot of folks do a deal, finish it, and then they're Dormant for months, and then the money that they just made is going out the window. It's going out the door. Like they're not buying the next deal. They're trying, or you know, I'm using quotes again. They're trying, but like that costs money. Uh, do it in parallel. Like you just bought one, buy another one quick, and then have those two right. And that's how momentum is generated. But I would say I haven't much changed. Like that was not our biggest payday. Like not even close. We gone on to do so much better because we realized that. A cosmetic rehab turned um, gut reno or, you know, however that kind of worked out for us is only the tip of the ice. Like if you can do that with an add a level or an addition or a new construction, or you can develop two lots side by side, uh, if you can flip a house, you can flip an office building, which is what we're doing right now. The time, energy, effort, the dollars, it's all commensurate, but the ROI is exponentially greater. So what I would tell people to take from that, and I know that that's a lot and we're jumping we're jumping around a bit, is, hey, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever like your unique skill set is, as you hone your craft in this space, whatever that is, uh, look where you can deploy that same skill set into a different asset class. So for us, we didn't stick to single family, like little dinker capes. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And 80K paydays are amazing. We went on to do an addition. Then we went on to do an add a level. Then we went on to do new constructions, right? We started getting hundred K paydays, 200 K paydays, 300 K paydays. Like that's what it's about. And that's how we scaled. And again, like I live in, in, in a house that I then bought for myself. So at some point, like I I chose to reward myself for the effort, (laughs) but, um, I'm not like, I'm not the Lambo guy. Uh, on, on social media. <laughs> no, no, in big
0: and bold on your bio, you're Mr. Ad a level. So I mean talk to me about talk to me about what what, what you what like what the significance is of adding a level um mm-hmm. when when you're when you're renovating a property and what that actually means to to the
1: investors who are like what is he talking about? hmm Yeah so it's it's the next level, no pun intended in like gut reno. Right? Like, if you're going to do a, a gut renovation as opposed to a cosmetic reno, like the next step is to do an addition, right? You'll add some square footage onto the sides of a house. Above that is an add a level where you actually double the square footage of the house by putting a house on top of that house, right? To keep it simple, it's a box on top of a box. It works for bungalows, capes, ranches, things that are squared off. Doesn't really work for buy levels and splits, but um, you force appreciation by doubling the square footage. You bring value. Like we were talking about early on, you create the value by essentially creating more house, more square footage. So uh, that was how we transitioned into those. Like Then the 100K paydays became commonplace. Like You don't do out of levels for less than that. And so I encourage people to, what's the next step for you? Don't get comfortable with that one thing, that one deal, right? Stay consistent. Keep doing the thing that's making you money but again, whatever that skill set is that you've managed, like hone that craft. And then what other asset class can you apply that craft to, to generate an exponential ROI? Um, so for us, it was at levels, then it's new constructions. And now, like I said, we're, we're, um, we're flipping office buildings. We're retrofitting an office building and doing a big, um, a big, uh, a big rehab.
0: I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, we'll, we'll end with uh, a morning routine, but before we get to that, I want to kind of tie a bow on this, this whole, um, Building momentum and doing and doing the right work in your business. I feel like we've had a great conversation about the type of work each person does in their business and what they're supposed to be doing as opposed to you know an integrator, as opposed to a visionary. But but also we've talked a whole lot about your journey. We've talked a whole lot about a whole lot about the construction space. I've learned a whole lot. And I'm just curious when we talk about the fact that you've gotten a lot of these concepts from the book Traction. Mm-hmm. But we're also talking about building and scaling and traction in your business as with the fix and flip model, right? Talk about how you're supposed to spend your money wisely when you want to build traction, when you want to gain momentum. Let's, let's tie a bow on that. When you talk to other people in your space that are doing exactly what you're doing other you know coaches and maybe gurus but investors for the most part you know uh, and you hear a lot of things at conferences and zoom calls and masterminds and a lot of the stuff you agree with by your peers but but some of the stuff by your peers it just doesn't sit right with you right mm-hmm. what are some of those things that you, you believe that some people in the construction space and the fix and flip space are 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 a proponent of, and you're just like, dude, that's not right. Or, or dude, like, I, I just I just kind of want to set the record straight. Like, what are some of those things in the fix and flip space that you want to set the record straight on today that other people are saying and that you're like, dude, like this is actually how it's done, or this is actually what the reality is. Can you share one of those with us for, for our
1: audience today? Uh, yes. I'll I'll talk about leverage. I mean, leverage is a four-letter word in our industry. And it can go either way, right? The, the old guard, the developers that have been in the space for a long time, they get comfortable and they like to self finance. They don't think they should be paying banks. Um, not all, but th- this is this is out there, right? And this is these are the rumblings that you'll hear. Uh, slow down to speed up. Don't, uh, which I, I tend to agree with that, but um, don't don't take on debt. You don't have to like hard money is too expensive, right? You've heard that one. Hard money is too expensive. Well, I would argue that it's too expensive not to use hard money and lose a deal, right? What's more expensive, hard money or the deal you didn't do? So use leverage, right? Early on, get levered. And especially in the climate that we're in now at the time of this recording, right? Uh, Money couldn't be any freaking cheaper. I am levered up and everybody ought to be cash is trash. If you've got cash in the bank, it's being inflated away. Like it's it's a simple fact. It just is. So get that cash to work. Go borrow. Put debt on things, especially cash flowing real estate. Um, so I just don't subscribe to that. Uh, you know, cash is king model, and and guys out there advocating for it. If they're in their fifties and sixties and they're set, I get why they're saying it. But they shouldn't be saying it to people who are new to their journey. Like, if you're early on in your journey, get levered up, do the deal you would otherwise not do, borrow, partner with the right people. You know, be careful, make sure you're partnering with the right people, um, and go do deals and go do more than one deal. Like, one deal is not gonna change your life, but two, three, four, like, watch your life change real fast. Yeah, and that's another great piece of, um, you know, knowledge there. I mean,
0: Advice is, you know, advice is worth a million dollars from the right person. But it's like, you know, people give advice from their perspective. So you have to understand when you're getting advice from people where they are and how they're looking at the world, how they're looking at things. Because, again, you can get advice from one of these old school investors who's, you know, in their 60s, and they're going to give you advice from their perspective, not from where you're starting out today. So you have to understand that it may be great advice and just may not be great advice for you. Mm-hmm. Spot on. Talk to me about your morning routine. What what is your what do your mornings typically look like? I know today is kind of a weird day for you. You're actually getting ready to head out of the property yeah, yeah. and the, the, the space that you're in, which is beautiful, by the way. But talk to me about what a typical morning routine looks like for you.
1: Yeah, I am super disciplined about my morning routine. I wasn't always, but um, in doing 75 hard, which some of your listeners might be familiar with, uh, it's just, it's not a diet. It's, it's really a lifestyle program. Uh, a couple of years ago, it really set up my morning routine to a point where it's consistent. Like you can set your watch to me, right? I get up at four forty-four. Uh, I meditate. My coffee is uh, pre-brewed, so the night before it triggers at five oh seven. Right? I go downstairs. There's my coffee. I grab a cup. I read. Uh, I journal. I have a devotional. Like I finish that by six a.m. I'm out the door for my morning workout. Uh, and of course, like I'm human, right? So there's days where it's six eighteen, like this morning it's six eighteen, and I'm staring at my shoes, and I'm like, "Yo, what are you doing?" Like you know, you're gonna go lace up and get your ass out there, you know. But I took uh, eighteen minutes to scroll or, or or whatever. You you'll make something up, right? Like you'll go you'll go sit on the toilet for eighteen minutes just to not go out the door, right? So I'll I'll, I'll work out six to seven. Uh, I'm back. I shower breakfast, uh, is I'm ritualistic about my breakfast. I eat the same thing every day, right? People are like, that's boring. It's like, yeah, but it's healthy. And it's how I fuel myself for the day physically. So, uh, I eat my breakfast. I finish breakfast. I what's plan your, my your, What's your breakfast? Uh, oats, uh, berries, banana, avocado, uh, a handful of vitamins. It's like, I prep it in the same order every day, right? Like it's, uh, <laughs> I put cayenne on my avocado. I put turmeric on the banana. Like I have my routine. It, it, I'm ritualistic about it. I like it. It sets the tone for the day. I finish my breakfast. I uh, break out my planner. I set my power list for the day. What, are the what kind of, would, what kind of planner do you use? Where is it? I don't have it in front of me. It's uh ink and volt planner. Uh, I would jump off camera and go grab the last no six years. I, <laughs> I've been using this same planning methodology for I'm looking at five of them over my screen. And this is the sixth year I'm implementing it. Wow. So I advocate for it. it's ink and volt is what it's called. If the listeners want to check it out, I'm not an affiliate, but it's that good that I, I advocate for it. Uh, I it. I finish my day, my, my planning for the day. Uh, what are my appointments? What meetings What zooms? Um, who am I meeting for lunch? What calls do I have to make? What's my power list look like? What are the three things that I absolutely need to get done today to move the needle? Uh, And then I then inbox zero. I managed to inbox zero. So as soon as that's done, I open my laptop. This is the first time you should be looking at email. For me, it's now three hours since I woke up. I scrub my inbox. By 8.30, uh, I'm in everybody else's inbox. And you know most people are hitting the office at 9 a.m. So by 8.30, I'm already touching them. I'm in their inbox. Uh, And then my day starts. Like you might say, shit, sounds like your day already started like, no, now my day starts. And now it's my peak productive time, eight to 11, like eight, nine, 10, 11. That's my peak productive window. That's when I really crush. So we have, we have almost identical (laughs) schedules. It's scary.
0: (laughs) And my listeners know my schedule. So they know, like go back and listen to almost every episode. This is legit my
1: schedule. This is, this is scary. This is, this is how it's done. Like, this is how successful people operate. This is how winners win. Like they're just consistent, you know, and it's boring, right? But routine will set you free. It's cliche, but like by having that routine and getting all of those things done early in the morning, me and you have excess bandwidth to deploy at 11, at noon, at two. So like put me on a call like we are right now and and I'm ready to go because I got all that other stuff out of the way early.
0: This episode is brought to you by the 90X Journal it is a little known fact that you are 42% more likely to achieve your goals when you write them down consistently. In fact, Forbes describes this as one of the most potent ways to achieve your goals. I actually tried a few of those iPhone journaling apps, but it wasn't the same for me. For some reason, I needed something more visceral, something more concrete. And you can call me old school, or you can look at it as a form of brain hacking, but a physical journal has been key to the consistent achievement of my quarterly goals. The thing though about physical journals is that they aren't all made the same. And I ran through just as many different types of journals as I did apps and none of them checked the boxes. Personally, I needed something that would help me create a step-by-step plan to achieve any goal in 90 days. I needed something that would help me decide on these goals, decipher the most important ones, time block, and then prioritize. And that's when I found the 90X Journal, the only journal that not only has a sleek look that demands compliments, but it's not just arm candy. From a vision board, an income tracker, to a 90-day calendar assistant, to habit trackers and affirmations, this journal does it all. And for the BTM tribe, I was able to snag you a sweet discount to try your first one or restock for next quarter. Visit Before the millions dot com forward slash nine zero x and enter code millions 15 at checkout that's before the millions.com forward slash 90 x and enter the code millions 15 with the numbers written out one five at checkout now since i've started doing these two things rewriting my goals every single day and using the journal's built-in water consumption tracker i've had a clear mind and clear skin LOL. Again, visit BeforeTheMillions.com forward slash 90X and enter code MILLIONS15 at checkout for 15% off of your entire order. Lifestyle Design Acceleration Hacks.
1: What is your favorite Before the Millions book? Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill is uh, my number one. I would uh, put Rich Dad Poor Dad up there. And I would say operationally traction, like once you're ready to really get it going. But mindset, think and grow rich changed my life. I love it. I love it. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Mm -hmm. Uh, Slack. We use Slack for inter-office communication. Uh, It makes sure that nothing falls through the cracks. You're not on texts talking about the same thing with four different people. All four people are in one place. So it's silos, conversations. It's uh, a no-brainer. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? Uh, freedom, 100%. I choose what I do when I do it and who I do it with. I don't have to be anywhere. I don't have to dress. I'm getting the chills right now. I don't have to dress however I don't want to chill. My life is my life, and I do what I want when I want. Um, and I'm, I'm blessed, and, and that's what I love about it. Mm. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Mm. 10,000 hours, like 10,000 hours of deliberate practice beating on your craft. Like I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur and intern, like early on, that means an operator, uh, over time you can, you know, ascend if you want to call it that you can delegate and elevate into the visionary role, still dabble as an integrator, but, um, I knew I needed to log the hours, log the reps. I've now logged 10,000 hours in two different industries, 20,000 hours as an entrepreneur. If people go back and look at their 40 and 50 hour work weeks, think about how many of those that is to get to a point where you're an expert, you're a master of your craft. Uh, it's time, it's time in the trenches, plain and simple. Um, You want to shorten the learning curve, get a mentor and ride their coattails. That'll help. But the reality of it is like you need to log the reps. Mm. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Uh, The work ethic piece, my dad, 1000%. I mean, I've never seen anybody work the way that man works. So my willingness to log the 10,000 hours comes from my, my parents, right? My dad and my mom, they're both entrepreneurs and watching them do their thing. Um, it, I would say that they inspired me to get in there and do the work, and then my circle isn't just my collective circle here locally, which is powerful too. It's the people that I'm not in in proximity with, like Ed Milet, Tom Bilyeu, um Robert Kiyosaki. Like these are names that you guys can, you know, your listeners will know. You go and you let them mentor you. They coach you by virtue of the interviews that they do, the podcasts that they host. That's who mentors me today. Uh, I don't have an audience with Tony Robbins, but I consider Tony Robbins a mentor because I, I get so much from his readings, from his workshops, from the things I've attended. Um, so I know that that's not a simple answer, but there's there's a lot of people who have influenced me.
0: I like the answer, actually. I think that, um, you know, going back to your lifestyle design book, I think he wrote it in one of the later chapters where, yes, like he's a big advocate for one of the most powerful things you can... Set yourself up within the world, which is a mastermind, but also without a, a mastermind. There's something that he calls like a mastermind of the mind, where you kind of create a mastermind of, of people that you wouldn't normally get to talk to or speak with. But because you consume their information, you kind of already have a knowing and a sense of what they're like and what what they would give you advice on. So when you create a mastermind of you know Robert Kiyosaki and Tony Robbins, although you may never get to speak to them, but you've read their books, you listen to their interviews, you yeah. actually talk Talk to them in your mastermind in your head, of course, and you can kind of start to piece together what kind of advice they would give you whenever you do have a problem. And it's a fascinating concept in the book. I definitely suggest you guys check it out. Um, I actually do
1: that. I actually really do that. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, Do you remember that part of the book? Yeah, absolutely. The chapter on masterminds, the Junto, Ben Franklin, the writing of the Declaration of Independence. Like, if people on your, if your audience is not in a mastermind, it is the greatest hack. Right. If they're looking for hacks, entrepreneurship hacks, get in a mastermind. And if you can't find one, start one. Yeah, absolutely. Last but not least,
0: why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we
1: have every intention of getting to the millions? Fear. I think plain and simple, right? It's it's conditioned into us. Uh, You are... Raised right as a child, hearing no way more than yes. It's just like how many times do you hear a parent say no to a kid at the park or around the house, right? It's just conditioned into your nervous system at such a young age. No, 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 no is a negative word. No is fear. Uh, yes is encouraging. Yes is abundance. You don't hear yes. It's it's the unfortunate reality of how children in society are raised, and so it's it's conditioned into our nervous systems the only way you break that conditioning you hardwire that you, you rewire that that wiring is by surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals who are of the abundance mindset and know what i'm saying right now to be true and they're like well listen like this is not how we're going to operate anymore this is the old broken programming and it's keeping people stuck in these cubes for 40 years It's they're burying their gifts. Their gifts are dying in these cubes. And, like, if you're meant to be an amazing underwater photographer, what the can we curse on this? (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck are you doing processing TPS reports? Like, get out of there. Your 56K a year job working corporate is not worth it. By the time all said and done, go take beautiful underwater photographs and sell them to National Geographic. Like, it's just, but I get it. It's, it's conditioned. It's hardwired into our nervous systems. The only way is to get around people like us that are saying things like we're saying and get it like in an emotional state. You need to be like, and for those that are watching, they see I'm, I'm at the camera. I am speaking with my hands. Like I'm passionate about this stuff. This passion is contagious. Get around people like us and you'll feel that. And that's how you'll rewire. That's how you'll get out of that, that programming that's keeping people stuck. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Mr. DeSilva, this has been an absolutely amazing podcast episode. I've learned so much. I've gotten so much value. I'm going to have to go listen to this episode a few times because I just had to, there's so much things in there. I was just like, I got to break this down a little bit later when I, when I got my own time. But if the listeners want to learn a little bit more about you, they want to pop in and say, hi, they want to ask you
1: a question or two, find out about some of the stuff you got going on. Where can they find some of your information? Uh, best place to start is uh, my website is my hub, GabeDeSilva.com, my name.com. You start there. There's links through from there to all my socials on social. I'm at real Gabe Da Silva. It's still me. If you message, I'm responding to receiving and responding said, to all he, my own stuff. He, he said it's still me. So he has a plan in place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for now, you'll still get me at some point. I imagine it's going to be too burdensome and I won't be able to read them all. But right now I can and I do. And if you're new in your journey and fix and flip is of interest to you, start on YouTube on the build is a docu series that we created a couple of years ago where i had a videographer shadow me for months to show people this isn't HGTV this isn't DIY network here's what it actually looks like to find fund fix and flip properties right in our market and it's it's real it's about as real as it gets right and i'm not a big cursing kind of guy but you'll hear me cursing in the show like it's real and and i encourage people to start there it's free we're not monetizing on youtube it's something i created for my audience And so I send people there a lot because I want them to get a feel for what it is. If that speaks to you and you're like, I would do this. And in fact, I want to do this because it looks like he is enjoying it and and I want to do it. uh, You can connect with me and and we can talk more about that. If you see it and you're like, uh, yeah, this looks like a lot of work and I don't want to do it then I just saved you a ton of time and money. <laughs> and so that counts it. too. I love it. I love it. I love it. We'll definitely link to that in the show
0: notes as well. Uh, Mr. De Silva, it's been an amazing podcast episode again. Uh, it's something that I think our listeners definitely needed right about now. So we'll get this out as quickly as possible. Thank you for coming on the show. And we'll talk to you very, very soon. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.